Our gospel reading this morning comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 16, starting at verse 25. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed, it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. This is the Gospel of the Lord. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I'm going to start and end this sermon by talking about that verse, because it's very important. Um, I was listening to a podcast uh, last week um, about an event in Sweden that happened on September 3rd, 1967. And uh, the event is now known as and I'm going to butcher this, but I'm going to do it dramatically, so it's going to sound good, okay? Hoger Traffic Com Lagningen. Say that after with me. Say, say that after me. Uh, Hoger? I'm just kidding. We're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. Hoger Traffic Com Lagningen. This was the day that in Sweden, they had, um, you know, throughout the history of their of, of travel in Sweden, they'd always driven from the time of horse-drawn carriages um, on the left side of the road, and this day, which I'm just going to call H-Day from now on, was the day that they decided to drive on the right side of the road. Um, So as you can probably imagine, it got pretty crazy. Uh, There's pictures on that day of congested streets. Uh, You know, there's cars that obviously are, you know, maybe they didn't get the message. They're still trying to drive on the left. There's cars um, trying to drive on the right. And then you get the same thing coming from the opposite direction, right? So then if you have an intersection, they get clogged up. You see pictures of, like, congested intersections. Um, Everybody's gridlocked. People are getting out of their cars and yelling at each other, um, which sounds like a... It would would sound fun to witness, probably, right, and listen to people argue and... um, whatever they speak in Sweden, but, uh, you know, that's, it'd be frustrating, wouldn't it? All, all, can, all things considered, it wasn't, like, terrible because it's Sweden. They did it as well as you could probably possibly do it, uh, making the switch. Um, and they even, they put out a song. There's, like, a contest they made um, for who can write the best song that they can put out there to let people know about this day when we're going to start 
driving on the right side of the road. The song that won is called Keep to the Right, Svensson, which I think is just awesome. Keep to the Right, Svensson. Worked out pretty well overall, all things considered, in Sweden, even with some of the craziness. But imagine that same thing happened, happening in St. Louis. Just read an article uh, last week about um, how terrible, like confirming, we already know it, everybody in here knows it, but confirming um, how terrible St. Louis drivers are um, compared to the rest of the country. But so imagine, you know, we, we know, we get out the door and we know which side of the road that we're supposed to drive on and St. Louis is still terrible at driving, right? Imagine we have to flip to the other side of the road. Imagine how frustrating that would be. It'd be Carmageddon. You try to drive on the left like you're supposed to. Maybe you have a little strategy of like finding some cars that are um, going the same way as you that you can get beside. But no matter what, you're probably going to be boxed in. You're probably going to have cars that are kind of pressuring you on each side to go the direction they're going. And no matter which way you go, no matter where you're trying to go, you'd be frustrated. And that's a little like how Jesus describes being his follower in the world. That's what we're going to talk about today. But first we need to talk about what does that mean? Like what does it mean to be in the world? There's a couple different ways that the world is used in Scripture, and so it can get kind of confusing. Some people can actually think it's contradictory, right? Because you have passages like John 3.16 where it says God so loved the world, and then you have passages like uh, in 1 John where it says if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. So it's like, how do those fit together? Um, so there's a couple different ways uh, that Scripture uses the word world. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that's kind of, it's the same in English. We have words that are, you know, we have like, uh, they're called homonyms, right? Where you have same word, but it means different things, right? Like uh, if you have, um, so a flute could mean a little fish and the tip of an anchor um, and something that is a very rare occurrence. So you could have, you could, you, you could have a sentence in English like, uh, it, was a, it was such a fluke that the fluke hit the fluke. So we, we, have, we, we have this idea of words that, you know, mean different, th- are the same, but they mean different things. So in, in um, Scripture, the world could mean the universe. That's how we typically think of it because um, when, when we hear the Greek word, because the Greek word is cosmos, like where we get cosmos. So the universe, so it could mean the universe. Um, in some places. In some places, it means like the physical earth, what we're, you know, all on right now. could mean all the inhabitants of the earth. It could mean different groups of the earth. It could mean all different people groups of the earth. It just depends on context. And so the one, the meaning, and this is really important to this passage, the meaning here, I think, is the last one, the one I didn't mention. The world as the fallen order set in opposition to God and to his people. So it's been traditionally said, um, church history, and this is following scripture, that um, the Christian has three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. world, the flesh, and the devil. Um, Dave kind of talked about this last week uh, in his sermon. Um, if what I'm about to, if, if how I'm describing the world doesn't, you know, ring true or make sense to you, then go listen to Dave. He probably explained it better. Um, but the world uh, is kind of the convergence of the 
flesh, like the sinful nature that we all have, and the devil coming together to oppose us. Um, so, uh, based off of that First John 2 passage where it says um, the world, everything that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the pride of life, it's powered based off of the flesh. So, how do those three things work together? The world, the flesh, and the devil. Here's a quote from uh, author John Mark Comer. I think he explains it pretty well. Everything starts with deceptive ideas or lies we believe, lies we put our trust in and live by about reality, mental maps that come from the devil, not Jesus, and lead to death, not life. Dave talked about that last week in his sermon. But, John Mark Comer goes on, deceptive ideas get as far as they do because they appeal to our disordered desires or our flesh. And then the world comes in to complete these three enemies' circular loop. Our disordered desires are normalized in a sinful society which functions as a kind of echo chamber for the flesh, a self-validating feedback loop where we're all telling each other what we want or what our flesh wants to hear. So when... So the world is when your own sinfulness and disordered desires and the ruler of this world, it actually, if you look back in your chapter, in um, chapter 16, it calls Satan the ruler of this world in verse 11. In another part of scripture, um, Satan is called the god of this world. Kind of language might make us uncomfortable, but that's how scripture is actually always described, our demonic oppression from Satan, um, that he, is, he has some amount of rule and power over us in this world. So it's when the ruler of this world and the disordered desires kind of converge to create this separate but related enemy, the world, which usually opposes us in one of two ways. So there's an inner opposition. Um, that's what this passage, uh, before this passage, has kind of talked about, um, the, you know, the opposition of the flesh, like using our flesh um, against us to draw us away from God. And then, so it has inner opposition, and then outer opposition, which we would generally call persecution. So actually trying to, you know, um, harm the church in some way, keep the church from worshiping in some way, kill Christians in other places and other, other times than our context, right? But outer opposition. So inner opposition of the flesh, outer opposition of persecution, and all of that is aimed at putting pressure on your faith. And I'd actually argue that tribulation, um, which is the word that's used in this passage, so you see uh, right there in verse 20, or sorry, uh, 33, um, he says, in, Jesus says, in this world you will have tribulation. And that word tribulation, it kind of comes from the word pressure. It comes from the feeling that someone gets when, they're put, when pressure is put on them. And so, whether it's inner opposition from our flesh or outer opposition um, from outward persecution, tribulation, pressure, the world is aiming to squeeze your faith out of you. Looking again, what's the issue in verse 33? In the world you have tribulation, pressure. Like being stuck in a Hoger traffic comment, you know, H-Day, like I talked about before. Being boxed in. Or, to switch metaphors a little bit, 
The world wants you to feel the atmospheric pressure. Like when you live and act as a Christian, it's the air just gets heavier, weightier, harder to breathe, harsher environment. And we can kind of identify with that. What does the world look like right now? What does the state of the church look like right now in our context in the West? In the West, we're living in a season of decline as a church. doesn't look like that in other parts of the world, especially the global South. But in our context, and this may, this may be kind of weird. I don't know. If some, some of you may argue with me. I don't, you know, it's fine. We can talk about it. But if you look at any sort of numbers, church attendance, volunteering, Holiness, any, any areas of, that we'd consider areas of righteousness and holiness, pretty much across the board, the church is in decline. See the rise of the nuns, like people that would check none in their religious affiliation in our country. Deconstruction is a big thing right now. It's not always completely negative in the way that some people use it, but for a lot of people, been led... Deconstruction has led them away from the church, from orthodox belief in Jesus. Actually, and I wasn't, this is not just um, sermon fodder. Um, This is something that I'm currently in a state of lament over, but I was in church this morning about seven o'clock. I was doing VBS stuff, printing out stuff for VBS, and I got this text um, from a friend. We've been trying to connect, you know, it's one of those um, things where it's, it's just, you know, you, you go back and forth with people um, that don't live near you to try to um, connect, and then somebody drops off, and then the other person drops off, but he just texted me, this is one of my oldest Christian friends, um, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but he said, I'm okay, and I would love to talk sometime. I do need to let you know a couple things, though. I don't really know how to tell you this anymore, but I'm not a but I'm not a Christian anymore, and to be honest, I don't know if I ever really believed in God. Um, this is real. This is, not some, this is not some cultural analysis. This is not some meta-level, you know, um, idea of the world. This is what we're grappling. We are grappling with the world right now. And with the pressure that it's put on our faith and our friends' faith. And we all know people who have walked away and are struggling because of it. And even we, we know people that are, um, I've seen what, what's called soft de-churching too. Um, soft de-churching where it's just kind of like, you know, people just kind of, they just kind of stop going. They're not in community anymore. They're not actively worshiping. You know, they may not have, like, completely renounced everything, but it's just kind of like, yeah, I don't need that in my life. It's resulted in a lot of, I'd say, I'd call it anxiety in the church. I especially see this in youth ministry. Like, when people are writing about youth ministry, I don't like to, I only read about youth ministry from, like, certain sources now because of a lot of it, a lot of it is so anxious. It just feels so anxious. Everybody's leaving the numbers for Gen Z look terrible in terms of church, you know, staying in church. And they were already looking bad for millennials. It's looking even worse in the past couple of years. 
There's a lot of anxiety in the church because of it. How do we stay? If you look in verse 1 of chapter 16, Jesus says that he's saying these things so that they would not fall away. He's saying these things so that they would not fall away. Going back to, uh, this kind of feels weird, going back to the illustration I used before of H-Day when Sweden switched the road names and they um, had this comp- competition for a song and um, the song Keep It, uh, Keep On The Rights, Fenson, won. Um, that was actually, they did a kind of clever thing because Keep On The Right in Sweden was, it, it, was, it has a double meaning. It was kind of like wordplay um, because it's also a, a euphemism in Sweden for staying faithful to your marital vows. How do we remain faithful to Jesus and our vow to follow under all this pressure to give up, just go the other way? That's what Jesus is talking about here because he's about to leave. This is the conversation this is, the end of, um, this is the end of the section right before he's about to do, he's about to have his um, high priestly prayer in John 17, and then he's delivered to death. He's about to leave. And he's telling them, how do you keep on the right? How are you going to stick with me? They were scared. And he gives us, he gives them and he gives us three truths to stay, to keep on the right, to hold us, to keep us. In an age when the church is in decline, in the age when we're all getting texts like the one I just read to you, in an age where more and more people are taking the U-turn, going the other way, we face pressure to fall away from Jesus and to the lies of the world. But Jesus gives us truths to counter the pressure of the world's lies. Let's look at the first. If you look at uh, verse 25 with me, let's look at the first thing Jesus says. So the world, the world will say, one, one of the pressure points, one of the ways that the world lies to us and tries to um, drive a wedge in between us and Jesus is the world says, you are unloved, you are unheard, and you are unhelped. You are unloved, you are unheard, you are unhelped. Let's read and see what Jesus says. Let's just look at uh, verse 26 and 27. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and believed that I came from God. So if you kind of peel back the layers here and look at what Jesus is addressing, um, it's possible that they potentially that his disciples potentially had the fear that, you know, we know this Jesus guy. We've been with him. We're not unclear on how he feels about us. We know that Jesus loves us. And we also know that Jesus is from the Father. He was sent from the Father. That's a big theme in John. Jesus continually telling them that. It shows up here again. However, they might have had a doubt in their mind about how God feels about them about how the, sorry, I should clarify, how the Father feels about them. I know this Jesus guy loves me, but maybe, you know, if, if, if we ask something of the Father, you know, maybe Jesus has to step in between because the Father is like, you know, he's over there kind of f- like just frowning at us. 
He doesn't, he doesn't want to actually do what we ask him to do. And so he's frowning at us, and Jesus has to argue him into, because Jesus loves us, right? So Jesus has to argue him into helping us. And Jesus is saying that's not true. I am a reflection. I am, in fact, it's called later in Scripture, the exact representation of God's image I, what, how I feel about you is how the Father feels about you. The Father Himself loves you. How beautiful is that? And so He says this. The Father Himself loves you. And I, let me park there for just a second. Because I think for a lot of us, um, and if this doesn't resonate with you, that's fine. You know, you can keep it moving, but... For a lot, of, Like, I read some things in Scripture, and I, I just kind of have the assumption that I should get it, right? Like, if, if Scripture says, you know, at some point, um, this is what reality is, God loves you, then I should just kind of, should just all click and make sense in my head and in my heart and outwork in my hands, and it should, it, it should just click, and it should always click, and it should make sense. Oh, yeah, that's true. That is not what the Bible expects of you. Jesus knows that it will be hard for you sometimes, or maybe a lot of the time, to remember that God loves you. He expects this. That's why he's telling them this in the context of him about to leave them, right? Scripture, does, scripture knows that we will struggle to remember that God loves us. I mean, when we look in Ephesians, what does Ephesians say? I think we can get lost in the, in the beautiful, you know, poetic words of Ephesians sometimes. But Ephesians, Paul is praying for the church in Ephesus, and he prays, Now may we have power together as his children to grasp how wide how long, how deep, and how high is the love of God. We are dependent on God for, to, like, to, to be able to feel His love, and it sometimes takes some effort. It takes some remembering. Scripture knows that, and Jesus is intentionally reminding you here, the Father Himself loves you. Be reminded of that. Why does Jesus, in particular in this moment, mention that? He also, he wants them, because the Father himself loves you, the Father would love to give you what you ask. If you're asking in Jesus' name, and according to his will, the Father would love to give you what you ask. It's not, you know, Jesus arguing with the frowning Father over here, and having to convince him, it's, um, especially when we look in John 17, that's going to be the next chapter, um, where Jesus is praying to God for us, it's more like Jesus is, he, he does intercede with us to the Father, but it's not a frowning Father who has to be convinced, it's a smiling Father that loves to help us and loves to hear us. The world would have you believe you are unloved, that you are unhelped, and that you are unheard. 
And Jesus wants to remind you, you are loved, you are heard, and you are helped by the Father. There's a song I really like. It's a worship song. It's like a really up-tempo worship song. It's called Build Your Kingdom Here by um, Ren Collective. They're from another country. I forget which one. But um, very up-tempo song. We, we actually asked Brian and Brian Hel- and uh, Andy Malkus to play it for youth group uh, at one point last semester. Um, and we gave them a little workout, right? It's a fast, fast song. But they were getting it. They got it. The lyrics from the song, um, or from the chorus, are, Build your kingdom here, let the darkness fear, show your mighty hand, heal our streets and land, set your church on fire, win this nation back, change the atmosphere, build your kingdom here. I've always loved those words, change the atmosphere, because it's so, I mean, it's, it's just such a short little three-word prayer, change the atmosphere, and yet you kind of get it, right? The atmosphere is hard to breathe as a Christian right now. We're feeling that pressure. We're feeling the weight of trying to follow Jesus in our world, our age of decline, the church, our season. But God loves us. God hears us. God helps us. And so we can pray with actual expectation, God, change the atmosphere. Change the atmosphere. If we believe that God loves us, we can pray big prayers and we can ask God to change the atmosphere, which is, I should also point out, a different prayer than, God, just make it easier on us, right? We don't, you don't see that kind of prayer being prayed in Scripture often. Yeah, just make it easier on us. But we do pray that God would change the world, that He would change the atmosphere that he would build his kingdom right here where we are. Let's look at the second thing that Jesus gives us, the second truth that Jesus gives us so that we can keep from falling and that we can keep on the right. Let's look at verses uh, 29 to 32. So Jesus' disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. So Jesus had said, you know, you you need to believe in what I've been telling you about who I am and my relationship to the Father. And so his disciples said, yeah, we get it. We believe. And Jesus says, yeah. Do you believe? Because you're going to be scattered. When Jesus is arrested, they scatter. In his biggest moment of need, of need to have friends who stick with him to the end, they fall away. They fall away. This is from kind of quoting from one of the prophets who said, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. And that's what happens. They fall away. So Jesus gives them this kind of like dreary news, right? You're going you're gonna to leave me. And then, so look at this. He gives them that news. And then um, if you look in verse 33, he follows that up with, and I say these things so that you'll have peace. Right? Which is kind of weird, right? So you're going to fall away. You're going to mess up. You're going to leave me. 
And I say these things so you'll have peace. Isn't that kind of a weird juxtaposition there? But here's, here's what I think this is um, going at. You will fall away and you will screw up, but I'll be okay. The Father is with me. In other words, this plan, this plan to save us, this plan to redeem everything, the cosmos, it's not dependent on you. Victory is not up to you. You cannot do anything to keep the gospel from being good news. We may think, you know, in the, in the world, this is what the world tells us, right? Everything is up to you. Everything is up to you. If you don't do it, it won't happen. If you don't do it, it won't happen. That puts pressure on us. That, put, that puts more pressure on us. That adds guilt when we do inevitably mess up because we will mess up and Jesus knows we'll mess up. So that's, that's, and that's one way of, you know, that, that the world tells us this. And also, sometimes we can feel like even if we know that like what we do isn't, you know, going to change things in the, bigger, um, in the bigger picture. Sometimes we can just feel like, man, I, I don't have any agency. I just feel like everything is up to, you know, whatever people do, right? The church, whatever happens to the church is just going to happen because of what people do. And we can kind of feel that lack of agency, but still thinking that, you know, things are in human hands. So either they're in my hands or they're in other people's hands. But either way, victory, victory's up to people. Victory's up to, to humans. And Jesus is saying, victory's not up to you. Victory's not up to you. You will leave me alone. I'm not alone. The Father's with me. Who is victory up to? This is the last thing that, um, the last truth that Jesus gives us to counter the enemy of the world. Verse 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. So notice that at the beginning of the chapter, in verse 1, Jesus says, I say these things to you that you may not fall away. And here Jesus says, I say these things to you that you may have peace. Something to notice. Bring that up later. In the world you will have tribulation, he goes on. But take heart, I have overcome the world. That word for take heart, some, some translations have be of good cheer which I think is kind of a cool, you know, it's kind of more British way of putting it. Be of good cheer. Um, some of them say take courage. Um, but take heart. The word um, etymologically, I don't know if I said that right, but originally comes from just kind of like be warmed. Be warmed. Take heart. Cheer up. I have overcome the world. Jesus' death and resurrection was a victory over all three enemies. Sin, death, well, I, I guess I can add death in there. Sin, death, Satan, and the world, four enemies, right? It was a victory over every enemy that he and his church has. The empty tomb is the lens with which we should see all of our suffering, all of our conflict, all of our frustration, it is a sure hope that one day you and I will dance on the grave of our worldly frustration. I have overcome the world. Take heart. I mentioned before about like just the, 
there, I do feel like there's some anxiety in the church because we do live in a season of decline. And yet Jesus doesn't call us to that. Jesus calls us to peace. He is telling us this so that we, ha- we can have peace. It is possible. So he's, again, the two things that he says he's saying these things for, that you won't fall away and that you'll have peace. I think those are connected, right? Because if we can have peace in the middle of the Hover, uh, Hoger traffic common lingon when we're frustrated and we're boxed in and we're feeling the pressure and people are doing U-turns on every side and it feels like it'd be a big weight of all, off of our shoulders just to turn around. If we can have peace in the middle of that, we're not going to fall away. And Jesus gives us peace in his own victory, in his own resurrection. And because of that, he tells us to take heart. And I think a part of that taking heart is what John goes on. Uh, Jason read this earlier from uh, 1 John 5 about mm, being overcomers. I'll read it again. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except for the one that believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Later on in Revelation, John also, um, John in the um, inspiration of the Spirit, also writes in Revelation, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, for they have loved not their lives even unto death. Overcoming is a big thing for John after hearing these words. How do we overcome? What is, what is John, where does John go with that, right? Because if overcoming, if, if at the end of all of, you know, I give the sermon about overcoming and how Jesus overcomes, and then there's just a laundry list of things that we need to do to overcome, that we need to, you know, take up and um, we need to just go defeat the world by ourselves, right? Take on all the effects of the fallen order that I was describing before. I don't think that'd be good news. But the good news in these passages is this. Our overcoming is... Uh, and overcoming under Jesus. So we are not the heroes. Jesus is the hero. Jesus overcomes, and we overcome. They call, um, John calls the saints overcomers, what? From the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. We are overcomers because we are seeing the world. We are seeing the fallen order. We are seeing the frustrations. We are seeing the, frust- the, um, the pressure that we face from the world from the perspective of an empty tomb. And we bear witness to that. We bear witness to that. I don't, I don't want to diminish um, martyrdom. <laughs> I mean, that, that would be bad, right? Um, but there was, I, I don't know, I, I could see something, you can see something, an obvious, um, there's an obvious heroic nature of dying for something, of laying your life down for something, right? Of being a martyr, which is what a lot of the Christians in the early church and some Christians in other parts of the world today have done. But there is something like, I don't know, that, that feels heroic about that. It feels heroic about that. And, you know, I'm 
I'm not just making this up, like in church history, there, was, there were actually periods in the early church where they had to convince people that you don't have to die for Jesus, right? Like there was, a, there was a movement of people that elected, that were volunteering to go be a martyr. They tried to be martyrs. And the early church fathers had to say, no, you know, that's not, that's not what you're supposed to do. Because there was a, there's almost a, a heroism in it, right? Sometimes today, I, I mean, I'd argue today, it, it doesn't, in, in the face of the pressure that we're facing, the kind of tribulation that we're facing in our context, it doesn't feel heroic. It may not feel attractive. It may not look attractive. But when we keep on the right, when we follow Jesus in spite of all of the pressure, when we fo follow Jesus in spite of everything that the world is whispering to us, yelling at us, throwing at us, we bear witness to a gospel of an empty tomb. We bear witness to a gospel that is true regardless of how it feels. We bear witness to a gospel that can actually change our atmosphere. Let's let ourselves be reminded this morning by Jesus of the love of God and the victory that is His. And let's participate in it by witnessing to it this week, by bearing witness in the way. It might look ordinary. It, it might not look super heroic. But let's bear witness by believing and following. And let us conquer by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, um, we have friends that have fallen away. We know people that are not here this morning um, because they um, don't want to be. Um, because the pressure of the world, um, the weight of the world, all of the things um, and the ways that the world has driven a wedge and, and tries to drive a wedge in between um, your people and you to just it's gotten too much, God. We're, we feel that. We feel the weight of that. We feel the pressure. And we can feel how easy it can be to do a U-turn, God. To believe the lies of the world and forsake your truths, God, but we pray that you would keep us this morning by reminding us, actually remind us in our souls, deep down in our souls, make it drip down into every corner and crevice of our hearts, God, that you love us, that you hear us, that you help us, that victory is not up to us, but it has been accomplished in Jesus, and we can trust in that, Lord. Help us love our world and help us to bear witness to your good news. It's in your name we pray. Amen.